This week on the Parlay in All Blue, we are going to be discussing the life of a brilliant and important intellectual, a major literary figure, and an architect of what we now know as Black Studies or Africana Studies. That person is Margaret Walker. Our guest this week is Dr. Mary Emma Graham, who's written a thorough and detailed and outstanding biography on the life of Margaret Walker titled The House Where My Soul Lives. Again, her poem, Margaret Walker's poem, that is, For My People, is one of the most recited poems in the canon of black poetry. Like I said, we're talking about a giant. She also wrote the novel Jubilee, which is one of the first novels by an African-American author set in the Civil War and Reconstruction. It's also a book that we now know that Alex Haley borrowed from, stole from, plagiarized from in writing Roots. Listen to the episode, get the biography, check it out for yourself. She was also a powerful essayist. And again, she, Margaret Walker, at Jackson State University, was one of the founders and architects of Black Studies, along with Nathan Hare and Sonia Sanchez, who were out of San Francisco State. Margaret Walker is right there as one of the handful of literary and academic giants who came up with the concept of Black Studies. Now, again, she did her work at Jackson State, feeling that this work should be centered and prominent at Black colleges, especially at black colleges in the South. Today, Jackson State's Margaret Walker Center houses all of her papers, and so you can check it all out. You don't have to believe me. Check it out for yourself. Most of all, she was a race woman. She was dedicated to the uplift of black people in every arena she stepped in. We need more race men and more race women right now. It will be better for the country. That will be truly something that will benefit all lives. Dr. Mary Emma Graham, our guest this week, who has written a biography, has really put her foot in this one. You will enjoy the book. It's a it's a detailed book. Now you you bring your 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 lunch because it but it's worth it. It's a good read. Dr. Graham is also the founder of the History of Black Writing Project, which is dedicated to resurfacing, studying, and researching and exposing the rich history of black literature in the United States. As always, I want to thank you for listening to us, supporting us. Remember to like, share, leave a comment and all of those things. And you can also support us by going to buymeacoffee.com for Mark Dawson's Parlay in All Blue. And you can either buy me a coffee and if I don't use the money for coffee, I will use it for books. Thank you so much for joining us on the Parlay in All Blue. Enjoy. Dr. Mary Emma Graham, welcome to the Parlay in All Blue. How are you? I am fine, and thank you for having me. Oh, listen, hey, thank you for for being on because you have finished quite a book, you know, in, in The House Where My Soul Lives, The Life of Margaret Walker, as you and I were discussing off Mike, before this, uh, I completed the entire book. It was a great book. So much so to the end of the book and towards the end of her life where she begins to 
forego Christmas rituals and she allows her son and daughter-in-law to cook for her that I felt tired. I had to get up and say, wait a minute, this is this is Margaret Walker's life, not my life. I had to get up. So I was I was all in the the entire way. So so thank you for the book. I want to start this conversation with Nikki Giovanni said Margaret Walker is the most famous person nobody knows. Why did she say that and what does that mean? It is an oft asked question. And I felt like I couldn't start that book without referencing what we all knew to be true. So most people know, for my people, the poem. I can walk into a room and somebody says, oh, I hear you did finish this book. And they start reciting the poem. People know it by heart. Uh, it is, a, And of course, people secondarily know Jubilee, her novel, which was many, many decades later. So you know the poem. You know it from your education, from your community, from sort of, you know, black history, women's history, but we rarely knew who Margaret Walker was. So fame came from her early rise as a poet, award-winning poet, having a poem that was literally, it was her signature poem, as she called it. But everybody knows that poem that is in a particular historical period or age period. You know this poem. Uh, I wouldn't say that everybody in the contemporary generation does or knows the poem, but that does not mean that poem does not signal the person, the life uh, in any full sense. And so that life was, even though lived, she lived a very public life. It wasn't that she was hiding from the public. He was not a, a person. Many writers are very, um, they don't want to be intruded upon. They keep themselves quiet. She was not like that very active person, but yet, we don't know that person in full. And I felt that her story needed to be told because it was a complex, extraordinary life. One that was so common in the one hand, but very uncommon in other ways. And so that quote really signals to us to know somebody's work is not to know the person. Right. I will tell you, you know, back to it, that quote and in, in reading the book and just sitting with the many accomplishments and, and also trials or what have you. I thought of uh, that quote as, so I'm a big jazz fan. That's the, the name of the, the show, the parlay in all blues, like Miles Davis, all blues, uh, all of this. So that's where it comes from. And what I thought of her is I compared her to the loneliest monk in jazz. So if you go into jazz, there is nobody in jazz that would not cite Thelonious Monk. And if you talk to people outside of it, they may know the name. If they hear a song or what have you, they may know it, but they actually don't know the breadth of his full contribution and what it took to get there. And that's the way I felt sort of going through this is that really sitting with a giant and you kind of know she's a, a prominent figure in not just literature, but black literature and black studies and a whole lot of things, but not really to not not really in depth the way uh, I thought I knew before reading the book. So thank you for that. Talk to me a little bit about or help us understand her background and sort of where she grew up and by where she grew up, not necessarily not limiting it just to the physical places, but the time that she grew up in and what her family life was like and how did that shape the the, the person that she would become? So 
two places in the South were significant, Birmingham and New Orleans. I think ultimately she came to see herself as much more rooted in New Orleans because that she called that home. And whenever she left Jackson after where she was from 1949 on, whenever she left Jackson to go home, she would go to New Orleans. But the birthplace is is Birmingham. And so to go from Birmingham to New Orleans by train, and train, of course, was her preferred mode of transportation throughout her life, was to really go deeper into the South in many ways, but go from the rural South to a more urban South. And so Walker had these two sides of the South that she weighed the world often against. Her world really was a Southern Black world, a culturally rich world, where the evidence of that richness was visible everywhere. It was also a deeply religious world. Her father was a minister. Education allowed him to also teach philosophy and religion at a Black school, or HBCU as we call it. And so she grew up in that cocoon world of a preacher's daughter, a talented, extraordinarily talented mother, gifted as a musician, which is why two of the members of the family were also musicians. One, a jazz musician, her brother, and her sister, uh, a pianist, who made her debut in New York, you know, her, her Carnegie Hall. So that is a very common world for a lot of people of her generation, and in fact, for generations after that, to grow up in the South, near family, near your school, near church. But her father also changed careers in a sense. And then therefore going to New Orleans was an opportunity for him to provide more for his family. But those two points before she became an adult were the lifeblood that she absorbed. And I think that it never, it never dawned on her, no matter where she lived, where she went to for school or visit, it never occurred to her to be anything other than a Southerner. I mean, she was really, and then of course, settling in Jackson from 1949 ensured that that would be the case because she would never leave. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so in that, that period there, uh, especially in New Orleans and she's born in 1915 and which is in the nadir of, of sort of American life where the racism is at its worst to call it segregated is almost underselling it. But at the same time, you spoke about, you know, her parents' uh, education, desire to educate their children. And there were other things that seemed to kind of nurture her, like the library and and what have you. And so this is something that, that I went through in the book. Did that world did that world hinder her development or did it make her development? This is a really good question. And we're talking a lot about that today because so much of Black life and black the Black world as it is perceived by others is from the point of view of a deficit, that somehow it lacks this, it lacks that. And certainly there were things absent from that world. But there was also something extraordinarily rich, nurturing, and explosive in that world. I mean, the creativity that could be found anywhere all the time was something that a young poet would absorb because she had that richness everywhere she went. She would hear music. She's in New Orleans. She would hear music. She'd go to the library. 
Her mother was a musician, a classically trained musician. Now she's hearing jazz, the secular. She's seeing, you know, blues, but she's hearing traditional spiritual music, but she's also hearing classical music. So the sacred and the secular, as you say. So all aspects of Black life were available to her. And so in terms of what she received, it didn't represent absence or a deficit. It didn't represent, it represented something that she could use as a young poet growing up. The sounds were part of her early experience. She was writing very early. She filled the pages of a of a journal or a day book, as we used to call it, before she finishes high school. So there was, she's a highly stimulating environment, highly stimulating. And she's surrounded by well-trained Black intellectuals. Yes. A number of scholars who we know now, St. Clair Drake, Horace Caton, people who founded institutions, founded fields, cultural anthropology, they were at this school where it later became Dillard University. So she had the best of the best in many ways within this Black cultural domain, the best of the best. And she drew on that and she learned to appreciate it so early because she was highly sensitive and attentive to that culture around her. For many people who are not as interested in the creativity side, it may be something you close out. She welcomed all of those impulses and those those thoughts and those feelings and that energy. And she was also a very curious child, perhaps too curious. She was not of, <laughs> she was not of the mind that children should be uh, seen and not heard. That was not Margaret Walker. Yeah, yeah. So you know, I, as I was listening to that, she would. I, I think the word would be precocious, or certainly, you, you know, like or uh, like people would say. She has been here before. That child has been here before kind of thing. And I think about, um, so my parents were born in Alabama in 1925 and 1930. And when I, when you describe her sort of questioning and answering or, you know, speaking up for herself and speaking up for herself to the point of being punished. Now, l- listen, I have to say that for me, the speaking up, had its limits of, of okay, I actually don't want the punishment. She seemed to, the sort of fire that we see later of that drives her forward, it seemed really innate. And it, it seemed kind of to be a balance between the parenting between her mom and, and dad that kind of allowed it to, to develop. Well, it's interesting because I had the great fortune of talking to her siblings before they died. And that was just a, a precious opportunity and they all unanimously said that she just didn't know how to keep her mouth shut. She would get in trouble and she repeatedly, and they would say to her, be quiet, don't just don't say anything. You can think it, but don't say it. No, she had to say it. It was a revelation. It was discovery. And she felt it had to be shared. And I think what I was beginning to understand is that this notion of pub- the public Writing for people, for my people, writing for the public was a concept that came very early to her. And so when she had a question, she had an idea, she had to share it. And so the poetry was another level of sharing as she began to write, even though her parents tried to keep her more contained by saying, just write it down. Whatever you have to say, here's a book. 
Put it in the book. Right, right. Well, she right. did that too, but she still didn't stop talking. She didn't didn't pop sharing. So this the idea of 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 being almost like a conduit through which an experience is expressed and and then made public for others. She was that that much that that conduit for people. She absorbed the culture and she gave it back to people. And she knew that she could do this easily. It came just natural for her. She was a professionally trained poet. She's not like many of the poets who were not professionally trained, but she was absolutely clear that there was a gift she had. And if you have a gift, you have to share it. I want to actually dig into that a little more about uh, being a trained poet and well-educated uh well, in, in, in having a, uh, a pretty strong peer group. Talk to me about her time at um, Northwestern as a, a student and then how that moves into being a part of the Southside Writers Group with Richard Wright and other really prominent writers. Okay, so I'll just step back one second before I do that, because one of the things that she had grown accustomed to before she goes to Northwestern is seeing other black writers because that some of us are old enough to remember the lyceum programs at the schools that we went to. The li- I certainly went to a school that had a lyceum program where they brought talented individuals. You could see black excellence uh, because you were forced to go to chapel once or twice a week, sometimes more often. So she was accustomed to seeing black writers. So when she goes to Northwestern and some of those writers uh, begin to appear, W.B. Du Bois came to Northwestern. So that was the first of a major figure. Crisis Magazine was publishing at that time. So she meets and sees, and he invites her to submit some of her poetry. But she stays in Chicago, of course. She's in school. It was not the most exciting experience. It was very tragic in a lot of ways in terms of people who came and left and who could not tough it out. But she did. She did and and lived to write about it. But staying on and getting a job at the WPA put her in this extraordinarily rich period of African-American culture, of American culture, of radical culture and thinking. The Works Progress Administration, the WPA, the Federal Writers Project was the, that which she was part of. And so many writers were heavily influenced, given the opportunity to write for a living very, very rare. And she had that opportunity. You have a job that pays you to write. Who ever heard of that in that period? That was that was a luxury. Mm-hmm. And she took it seriously. So, so, you know, her best work for my people came during that period. But she was part of a group of writers who were looking for each other, looking to to bring their talent to the forefront, and getting the support of the federal government to do that. They were paid to write, paid to work. So they all met each other and started meeting regularly at the Southside Center. And that writers group is has become famous. It is actually the pattern that we see happening over and over again, where writers are in a similar area, geographical area, come together, nurture each other. And out of that group comes a movement of some kind. And so we often think about that period as part of the new Negro Renaissance that spills over into Chicago. So I use the term, as other people have, Chicago Renaissance, 
they formed the Chicago Renaissance. And there were not just writers, though. There were students at the University of Chicago, like St. Clair Drake. People were there who came and dropped in. So it was, it was like the salon culture. You come by, you, you read from your work, you hang out together, you spend the afternoon, somebody might cook a big pot of gumbo, which is her favorite, and you eat together. And then you do this on a regular basis, one, two, three years. And those writers, those scholars emerge and go on in separate ways. But that foundation becomes part of who, what makes them who they are. This communal sensibility, this period of energy where they feel that they have something to contribute and they're supporting and nurturing each other. So that Chicago uh, Renaissance was, again, this parallel to the New York Harlem Renaissance. And we not just are using the name, but the locations. And we know today, having done that kind of research, is that cities around the country had their own Renaissance, South and North. We just don't know them all. And, you know, we're going to continue to try to uncover that work. But the Chicago and the New York versions were really important because so many writers had migrated to Chicago from the South. And that migration gave them a sense of commonality because they came from the same same locations or similar areas in the Deep South to Chicago. Yeah. So I have a, a friend. Uh, and so I'm a Chicagoan. And I have, but I am not a, a a blind loyalty Chicagoan. But I have a friend who says that Chicago is more significant than Harlem. That's all. It, that's his whole thing. And I and and, and, I, and before reading this book, I'm like, come on, man, you just just making it up. But as I read the book and looked at the names and the the period that they're writing in and the topics that they're choosing to take, I'm like, well, maybe. And then when you at the end, we'll get to it. Again, in the black arts movements of the 70s, the Chicago group and you, the hockey might booty comes up. There's so many things that I liked about the book, because after I left Jackson State and I will get back to Margaret Walker, I actually became more of a reader when I finished college and when I was there, if that makes sense. And so I would go to the Woodson Library on the south side and I was just get book after book. And after some at some point, the librarian said, this is all we have but go over here. And he gave me uh Haki Motobudi's bookstore where I you know, really started to. So anyway. Third world press. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So back to this story, leftist politics are prevalent in Chicago during this, this period and in the, in the United States. How does that influence um, not just sort of Margaret Walker, but that group in terms of, how often they got to write, um, how freely they got to write, and what they wanted to to write about. Well, yes, that was the uh, period of the you know Communist Party. That there's the new left and the old left, and this is the period where the movement itself was heavily influenced. The artist movement, the musical movement, the social uh, activism was heavily influenced by communist or Marxist left politics. So people went to study groups. She was she would go to the left study groups. She was introduced, of course, to this by in in the um, South Side Writers Group. But she was also introduced to it from the members of the group like Richard Wright. Wright was, you know, as you know, was a member of the Communist Party. He was the one who felt that we needed to have our own thing. And so the South Side Writers Group was their own thing. It was not something that other people said 
this is what we want you to do. It was writers coming together, but he had already read. And the idea of a social movement and literature emerging out of that social movement, people were reading the literature, they were writing and uniting around this idea that this world is changing and we can be in the forefront of that change in our work will help fuel that change. So the art, the music, the literature, art and politics made a marriage during that period in a very intense way. Now, it's making a marriage today in some unfortunate ways, right. art and politics, but it was a period where people were reading and seeing social change as possible. And of course, the communist movement was very taken by uh, the Black Belt thesis, as we called it. That is, this idea of Black people transforming, helping to provide the change and transformation of the world was very important. So back, Black politics at that time were left politics. It was a way in which you could see change through a notion of a better world, a world where people cared about each other. Uh, and that was a, an active you know, cause of the communist movement. They also knew that the numbers mattered. You had too many Black people coming to Chicago from the South not to recognize the power of the numbers. And so Chicago, for those of you, as you said, people say that Chicago was bigger than, than New York in terms of for it, it's, its renaissance. That's a lot to be said in favor of that because the numbers do speak for themselves. Yeah, yeah they do. The numbers and, and, and the quality. I mean, there's some really really important contributors to the culture during that time. But the other thing that, that I'll just say that many people came to Chicago, but they made a home in Chicago. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. A lot of people, and Wright was one of them, went to Chicago, then to New York, then he left. So many people came through New York. So many people settled too, but the artists and writers often came through New York because it was a major metro metropolis. It was where the publishing industry was, 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 and people wanted to get published. They wanted to perform on in theater. So that part of New York is what we know most. But in terms of people finding a life and a, a way of being in the world that they had some control over, Chicago was the place. Libraries, the, you know, the DuSable Museum. You've got all that. And they were all friends. You know, her best friends were out of that same community. So it was, it was from all of that that you see this, this, this mixture of culture and politics that was so central to Chicago. Yep. What is a protest novel? Well, it's got a lot of different definitions. Uh, the probably the most negative one is that it is a novel that is written specifically to support a point of view of social change in the society, social change. And so the politics is driven by a political view that is less art, unfortunately, is often the view than it is politics. It's a political arm of a vision of a different society. And so you protest the conditions under which you live and you worry less about what art somehow or another right, tries to rise above that. Uh, it's been given a bad rap. I put the negative part first because you can also see the protest novel as a novel that invites investigation into the life of Black people at a particular moment in time. Migration, 
Many of the protest novels were novels of migration, stories of people's lives changing. Yes, they had stories of conflict. Yes, they were protests, protesting those conflicts and they were trying to say, we have to change this because we are the generation that must do that. And many of the novels became classics, as you know. So I don't think there's a question about there were, they, they, they were not considered art. They became classics. Not only Native Son by Richard Wright, but there were other novels that we have forgotten because Wright sort of rose above uh, many of those. But the bad part of it is that they people viewed it as less art than politics and the politics should not enter art and therefore it must be bad. But for Black people and for Black artists, this was a pathway into deepening their understanding of American culture and finding a place for themselves on the art spectrum. So I see it as a, as a, as a learning experience for a lot of people. Protest novels were written almost as a first novel by many, many writers. Right. So I, I want to thank you for that, that question, to, because to my journey as a reader, I don't know why I would stumble upon um, Albert Murray first. Because I could read one paragraph, but I remember speaking negatively of, or my perception that he was speaking negatively about the protest novel. But we, we could get into that a, a whole other time. But it, thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, for, for what it's worth, what I hear is either sort of protest novels or when people say, you know, that this music is too political. I, for me, as somebody, I enjoy that. It inspires me or what have you. And I like it, especially if it's well done. You talked about for my people being written at this time. Why is that poem important on two levels? Why is it important for you as someone who is a PhD, a professor, a scholar in literature? What makes it important in that way? And then what makes it important culturally? So, as I said, Walker was steeped in Black Southern culture. She knew how to translate through a language, the language of poetry, all that she could feel, all that she knew, all that she had seen. And so the, the poem itself, which is one of the longest ones, of course, that she wrote, takes us on a journey through history. Now, she's learning how to be a professional poet. Keep that in mind. She's majoring in English. She's taking, she's going to Iowa. This poem was written, of course, before. She uh, after she graduated from college, but before she goes to graduate school. So mm -hmm. it's 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 this culmination of formal education in poetry. And she would have been exposed in college to modernist writers. So Walker took that modernist ethic mm -hmm. and translated it through a black lens. That is the power of that poem, not imitating what she saw other poets doing but bringing something original, meaningful, and clearly recognizable. So a journey through the history of the Black experience through sound, through words, through feelings. And then at the end, that powerful poem, Let a New Earth Rise. She's speaking revolution at the end. So it, it gives the heart and soul of the experience of that migrating population at the time and the writers that she was a part. So she was the, 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 the essence of a movement in American poetry, modernism, 
and the value and richness that comes out of Black poetry. She made a marriage out of that, but did not fail to make it sing, literally sing. You can sing that poem. And of course, it has been set to music. But she was she was creating a, a, a marriage there. She didn't she wasn't imitating. She was creating. And therefore, it fit all of the categories of poetry at the time because it was such a powerful statement that nobody had seen before. That kind of mixture of modernism and what we might call folk history or black history. And then, of course, we know when she wrote the book, she added those folk narratives there as well, the ballads. So she didn't forget the original source of black art in musical form. She wouldn't, she refused to forget that. She gave us those amazing sonnets, amazing lyrics, but she wouldn't forget the folk poetry. So that marriage is what makes it so powerful. And of course, it serves every generation. It does not die. It never becomes stale or old. It, it, it's timeless. It is. Absolutely. It is. It, and, it, and the power of it is, is timeless. So if I'm if I'm understand, are there some poems that are meant to be read and some meant to be spoken or performed? Is that is that a thing? Um, yes, there is today what we call performance poetry. But I think the key element that we have to remember is that the word lyric comes from the word from the instrument lyre. It is sound, it's music, it's an instrument, the lyre. So Walker comes from a lyric tradition that is sound becomes extremely important. But she wasn't just limited to certain kinds of sounds. She was sensitive to all those black sounds. She absorbed those black sounds. And so she brought that sound culture. And so orality was very central to her poetry. And of course, she grew with the poetry and everybody would expect to hear her read her own poems. One of the last things she conferences she attended, she recited that poem. And even when she was literally months from, weeks from dying, she could recite that poem by heart from a wheelchair. Uh-huh. She could do that. So the sound of a of, of black sound is something she interpreted in those words. And so performance came natural for her. But she also comes out of a tradition with James Weldon Johnson, Paul Lars Dunbar. People recited Black poetry. Right. So she, again, she's bringing all of that overlay to what she's learning as a, as, as a young person going to college and learning the new poetry of the day. She's saying, yes, I hear this modernist voice, but I've got something else to say something else to lay on top of it. And for me, that uniqueness is what gave For My People its strength and a number of other poems like that. But that's the one we remember the most. Right. You, um, at the beginning of the book, um, it seems like you're having a conversation with uh, Dr. Alexander to to switch the names now, right? So it's Margaret Walker, Margaret Walker Alexander, so with Dr. Alexander. Um, and she stops and sort of says, I'm Black, a woman, and Southern. Why was it important for her to identify herself in that way? So it is definitely a pronouncement. And you can see it in multiple 
at multiple levels. First, she often explained that that was the reason that often people did not take her seriously. That she was the three things that seemed to be out, make her an outlier. She was black. She didn't leave. She left the South, but came back and refused to leave again. And she was a woman. And that those were strikes against you. And if you have those three strikes, how can you expect to sort of push through? But she turned them into, of course, pluses, not minuses. Because she felt that it was the South that gave us the culture, the power, the dynamism of the art, but also the force to transform the world. Most of the South was where Black people lived. You know, yep. Mississippi is still, what, 45% Black today? It was 65, 70% at that time. Other states in Alabama and uh, Louisiana were, were, were similar in terms of the numbers. So for her, she wanted to make sure that those contradictions were clearly stated. I understand what my limitations are, according to some people is what she was saying by that. Let me tell you, however, I can turn those limitations to a positive. Yeah, listen, uh, uh, well, one one stop on, on Mississippi real quick, and this is Mark Dawson's opinion, not uh, Dr. Graham's. Until Black people all over the world, we get Mississippi and the Congo, the area in Central Africa, right? We ain't going anywhere. So those are the two places that I think are the most resource rich. There's a reason why black people in those areas catch the most hell, because I think it's something magic in the soil, the air, the trees in those places. And once we figure those places out, we, we will we will be free anyway. Well, I will add one thing, Mark, yeah. to what you're saying. So I didn't go to Mississippi, of course, until I went to work at at Ole Miss, which is the second sort of period where I met Walker and where we, our relationship blossomed. But what I discovered, and of course, yeah. I knew blues music because I'm born, born and raised in Georgia. I know blues music. Um, I realized that there were as many musicians who did not leave Mississippi as yeah. there were who did. So I would hear Bobby Blue Bland. I'd hear people, B.B. King. I hear those people all the time. Those who left, left. But there were equally that number of people who did not leave, did not have that opportunity. But that music was still there. So it's a very rooted in that culture. And of course, it's the numbers of people who were all living in that experience and drawing on that same experience and giving voice to it in various ways. But music was one of the most powerful ways. So oh, I came to know it that way. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So um, yesterday we had a conversation with um, Charlie Cobb, who was uh, with SNCC, an organized field secretary with SNCC. And he talked about that, you know, after, you know, the hard work of organizing during the day, they would be in little juke joints and cafes and there would be B.B. King performing there. Not like as B.B. King in concert. No, like this is just what I do kind of thing. So. So, yeah, that the Mississippi and the Congo, those that's that's where we need to focus. I will tell you this. Now, I had to read on being female, black, and free, that essay is a part of in going through the book so I can understand the, the biography that, you, that you've that you written. And, and boy, she is not biting her tongue uh, 
at, at all of that. I, I mean, that, that is some powerful, straightforward writing about uh, discrimination and, and not just being black, but it being a woman and the discrimination. And you talk about the the pay differences and uh, uh, even at Jackson State and, and, and just what it means to be a professional woman. But at the same time, so she's very much here is like, I'm black, I'm Southern, and I'm a woman, but she's not a feminist per se. Mm-hmm. Help me through that or help us through that. So you have to think about the period in which feminism emerged, uh, primarily white feminism or, you know, stage one, whatever we want to call it. And so Walker was put off by that. Um, in that same essay that you have read, she talked about, I love being a woman. Mm-hmm. She saw that as deterministic. You know, uh, it would be hard for her probably to understand today the sort of gender uh, continuum that exists. Because for her, your your sex, that is being a woman or a man, in her mind, were determined from birth. And that's mm-hmm. who you were. And mm-hmm. so the idea of, of that, but that she was also what I call a member of the respectability politics generation. Sure. Mm-hmm. Respect, you know, women and respectability. This is the era of many women who were leaders and they had to be pristine in every way to gain the respect of the nation. They led this, this country in that way. They sat with presidents. They had opportunities that other women did not have because they led through this politics of respectability. Uh, and I had, and I'm glad that I had access to the writing about that so that I could explain this interesting contradiction between being critical of that, but also being fully immersed in the politics of respectability. That is, women have to present themselves, Black women in particular, because the previous period, they were abused, disgraced, insulted, and the only way to rise above that is to be as respectable and demand respect as greatly as you can. So the respectability politics would require her to be beyond reproach in every way. Mm -hmm. And so feminism for her relaxed too much of that kind of thinking. It was, again, white feminism, liberation. And there's another term that she uses, I am an emancipated woman, not a liberated one. Mm, mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Not eman- I'm emancipated. And of course, she's speaking of, you know, emancipation. We know what that means. But liberation, meaning sexually, I understand that I have to be a respectable woman because I want to, I earn, I deserve that respect and I'm going to get it. But the ideas that feminism represented, she valued the acknowledgement of the differences she acknowledged. But that part of it, the liberation part of it, uh, the women libbers, as we used to call it, that she couldn't go with. Yeah. I, listen, I um, uh, so my mother is born 15 years after Dr. Alexander, and she's a, uh, she was a teacher, right? She's still with us. She was a teacher, as were if, if many of the people who went to school, that's what they were were in, in the right. and so in reading this biography, I understood my mother and my aunts a lot better. And the teachers that I grew up with in terms of being a teacher is like 
well, yeah, I mean, there's the job of educating people, but there is my place in the community. And I also remember uh, my mother very strongly growing up of like, I bought my own car. You see that car? My name is on it. And, you know, I'm thinking, like, what, what does that mean? But now it all makes it all makes sense now that, you know, I, I understand the sort of trajectory of where we where we've been. She, but you, she, but you, but you, you, you put your finger on it that women were models for the community. They were the models, and so if you were going to be a bad example for the children that you're teaching and the community that is that you're representing, that would be unacceptable. All of that went together. It wasn't just a job. It, 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 all of it went together. It's, it, 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 listen, somebody has to do the bulletin board at church. Somebody has to type up the, the program. Somebody has to organize the 4-H club. Somebody, it's a whole lot that, that went with that, that, that I remember really well. She is, she is famous for the, the novel Jubilee. How did that come about and where does that story come from? Uh, well, this is a family chronicle. It's a family narrative. You know, she's raised by her grandmother. Um, her parents were working. You know, she had working parents, uh, mother and father. And so she spent a lot of time as the, as the first and oldest child, uh, a lot of time with her grandmother, who was not a formally educated woman and who had uh, all the stories and who was born in slavery, who had all the stories. And so Walker absorbed that part of her culture, uh, which, are, you know, the folk culture, the the, the, the oral culture. She took that and absorbed it. And of course she was, a, she loved the stories. She loved those stories and many of, so that book really came out of what she learned from her grandmother, but she of course adapted it to fiction. Mm -hmm. It is her mother's story. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It is her mother's story. Not so much her father's story because that was of course the Caribbean part of her life, but it is her mother's story. And so she took the name, not of her grandmother, uh, but of the original of of, of Viri was Elvira, which was the mother, uh, the the grand the mother of her grandmother. So her great her great grandmother is the character who who's born in slavery, whose story we hear in Jubilee. But it's a family chronicle. Uh, what we now think about it in terms of it is the first sort of modern neo slave narrative. That is a neo slave narrative, a la beloved. Tony by Tony Morrison, that that kind of writing, that kind of permission to give us a contemporary story that places us in slavery and takes us through is a new way of thinking about that experience. And so hence Neo. But Walker was not thinking about it specifically as that genre because she was 1966 beloved and the the neo-slave narratives didn't come until the early 80s. And of course, Beloved is 1987, 88. But Walker was really trying to give us a contemporary perspective on that period and giving us an understanding of the foundation of where we are today. Now, she wanted to write a sequel and probably had several sequels, maybe even a prequel. She never got around to do it. But I would say to a point you made earlier that there is so much writing left unpublished by Walker. She wrote far more than she was able to publish. And that goes back to this notion of the most famous person 
we don't know because there's so much stuff out there. Her political views and essays are amazing. We were able to publish some of them, but far too few of them have ever seen the light of day. Yeah. So a couple of things there. I think the sequel would have been Mina and Jim. I may have it, yep. it wrong. That's just correct. sort of listen. That's I correct. would when I when I read that, I was like, oh, that's the book that I need. I need that book, right? Mina I need and Jim. that book. Mina and Jim. Yes. And and when I was throughout your book, just pulling from her journals. I mean, are we going to see her journals published? Because it seems like this it's it's just a treasure trove in her journals. I think that I certainly hope that we can do that. You know, you can't publish all of them because that would be volumes and volumes and volumes. But we certainly can publish selected journals of Margaret Walker. I think I had hoped that this book would bring that kind of attention to her, mm. that that would be necessary and wouldn't be a difficult task for a publisher to see as valuable. It would be valuable as literature, but Walker in her own words, I can't imagine why we would not want to see that because I have, I had to adapt some. I do try to quote as much as I can. It would have been even longer had I done mm-hmm. that. But I do think we need a collection of her selections from her journals and her letters because she wrote her letters before she mailed them to people. Uh-huh. And so we have so much of her actual words that we can draw from to get an idea of who Margaret Walker really was, because we we still, I hope we know her better than we did, but nothing like your own words, nothing like your own words. Yeah. Yeah. And, and um, um, I, I, you know, I'd really like to see that. And, and as you talk about the journals and, and, and sort of from New Orleans to Northwestern and Chicago and, and Iowa, it appears to me, and this is not just me being a Jacksonian saying this, this, it appears to me that when she gets to Jackson State, maybe not like right away, but certainly during that period, it seems like she has honed all of her powers. And what I mean by that in terms of um, a lot of things are beginning to even out in her family life. And her understanding of her health and emotional and sort of mental health, but just the leadership and purpose and all of those things, things in the voice mm-hmm. seems to come together at Jackson State. What is a race woman and how does that drive her work at Jackson State? So if we talk about respectability politics, the mm-hmm. politics of respectability, The other component of that is this notion of being a race woman. That is, you are a woman who's committed to your people, to your race. And therefore, that comes first. That comes first. You're thinking about them, their history, their future, uh, what contributions that have been made and have not been have been ignored and under under expressed. And so that Walker was very much a race woman in that sense the Mary McLeod Bethunes of the world, women that she had enormous respect for. She was in that generation. Right. Um, and, you know, an educator staying at Jackson State when the majority of her male colleagues, I'd say 95% of them left, most of her female colleagues and peers did not. Mm-hmm. So I would say that was a generation of race women 
who continued to work at HBCUs, who influenced so many of us. I'm one of those people, students who had that op- that fantastic opportunity. So you put your race first. And again, to your question about the feminism, you couldn't do that if you were a feminist mm-hmm. in her mind. And mm-hmm. so you had to eschew the idea of white feminism if you were a race woman. There was no contradiction between a strong woman, an outspoken woman, a woman who embraced politics, ideas, artists, who spoke her own mind. There was no contradiction in that and being a race woman. Yeah, no, I, I, and, and listen, I think we need more, many more race women and race men uh, now today. It seems like we've, we've kind of we're, we're we're not navigating that piece of it really well publicly uh, now. But here's something that, so there's the Margaret Walker Center, uh, and when she was building it, the, the Institute, I didn't realize how much of an architect of what we know now as Black Studies or Africana Studies that she was or what she played into that. Talk to me about how that came to her and why it was important to her. So this was the latter period of her life. She had gone back to school. Now, this is a this is one of these uh, classic examples of returning adults. You're a non-traditional student. She goes back after her children are teenagers getting ready to go to college. She's going back to get her advanced degree mm-hmm. at Iowa. And she's in the midst of what was happening in higher education at that time. People were really looking at new curricula, trying to understand how the humanities can be more integrated into the other disciplines. Um, But of course, she's also recognizing that what's going to happen in that is the loss of knowledge about the Black experience. This is before we see Black studies writ large. So she's again, as she did in her poetry, bringing modernism together with Black culture, both folk culture and its, you know, oral aspect and its written historical aspect. She's putting these ideas about sort of the new humanism, humanities as a, as a context for understanding world culture, humanism, together with understanding the Black experience historically, its culture, its ideas. And it wasn't just contributions. This is not just about contributions. It's about the way in which Black culture has been there from the very beginning and not recognized. The way in which it is integrated into other aspects of human knowledge. You know, the book of the the Egyptian book of the dead. And she goes back way back to the African culture. So when she saw this opportunity to bring new knowledge, a new curriculum, in at Iowa, and she was teaching in that new program, she saw the opportunity by the time she had finished Jubilee in 66, she was ready to take on another task. And she's saying, if this is an opportunity now that we can bring a focused study of the Black experience to education, to education in this country, and abroad. And for her, that did start in Africa. Now, keep in mind that there's also a philosopher in Margaret Walker. Her father's degree was in philosophy. She read all the books that he read. 
She was devoted to her father. And so philosophy for her was very important. So she's absorbing, again, she's blending this new curriculum, this uh, sort of a rebirth of the humanities or the introduction of humanities as a field of study for education with the knowledge, deepening the knowledge of Black history, but also as a philosophy. And that's what Black studies is. It's a way of seeing what we know of the experience of Black people in this world and how we need to bring it into the study of formal official study as a field. So she's an early advocate of this, the Margaret Walker Center. It wasn't named that at first, but it was really a center for the study of Black history and culture. Black yeah. history and culture were her very, and so, but you're right, even though I would say San Francisco State, where, of course, Sonia Sanchez taught, was probably 1968. Mm -hmm. She was teaching there. Margaret is a close second. I mean, the idea was already germinating in her head, but she was at Northwestern for part of that year. And so she had to come back and jumpstart the center. How does Jackson State and sort of Dr. Peoples uh help her or inspire her to 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 do that work how does how does that sort of come together um two things you know he was there as a student when she was yeah. teaching so even though and i had a, again a wonderful opportunity to do an interview with her he had not taken courses from her uh -huh. mm -hmm. now i don't know if this you recognize this but if you go to teach at a school where you have been a student and the most famous person in that school is Margaret Walker. And you didn't take classes from her. You got a, you got a lot of sucking up to do. Right, right, right. And right. I, and, but he also recognized as a, as a leader, he was, you know, he was the youngest president of Jackson State. He wanted to really make an impact. He had come from the army. Uh, he was a, 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 you know, a new generation. He was, he was the new black experience coming of age. Uh, comes back to his home institution. And he wants to make Jackson State the center of a new education in Mississippi. He wants to make an HBCU the leading institution in the state. He's got right. the most famous writer of a, if more, many people would say, the most famous writer of the time in that moment, right. in the 60s. You've got a black arts movement, you got young black writers, but Walker is a known quantity. Her yeah. poem brings us back. For my people had a resurrection, a renaissance, second and third renaissance in the 60s. So he he needed her, as I say in the book, as much as she needed him, because she needed to be released from teaching and everything else. But also he could use her to make the statement he needed to make about the power of history. So he was pro-Black studies. He was pro-Margaret Walker, but they formed a union. She kept people from bothering her. And he did, and, 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 and she was able to do the things that made Jackson State well renowned, bringing money, external money and funding, all those conferences, politicians, yeah. actors. She knew everybody who was anybody. You know, Ossie Davis, Ruby D, best friends. She would, she, she needed him as much as he needed her. And so that partnership was made in heaven. Yeah, no, listen, in the, in the timeliness of it, because uh, 
<clears throat> again, and and just sort of the the work that I'm doing for for episodes and preparations, and and I have no criticism of uh, President Riddick's because it's a different time, but. What Margaret Walker was able to do with John Peoples as president just could not have happened in a time before. And we'll just just leave that leave that there because I have to go to homecoming and some of these people are relatives <laughs> of Riddick's and, and I don't want them jumping me like in the, in the parking lot. <laughs> so I'm gonna leave that alone. Back to just sort of the most famous person that um that that nobody knows. Richard Wright. Ralph Ellison, Gwendolyn Brooks are what I was called certainly peers or contemporaries and not, and her work in terms of uh, quantity and quality is on par or higher. How is it that sort of, sort of Invisible Man, which is, I think perhaps that's the book that I tell people is my favorite, right? <laughs> Why is it that, that, um, well, with this book, what do, you, what do you hope to get out of writing this book? Well, I wanted to just give a well-rounded picture of a woman whose life was like so many other people's lives, women in the South who chose to live and remain in the South, who chose to marry, have families, and care about their families more than anything else in the world. So when you ask about her writing, her writing was her, her journals were a way of expressing what she could not publish. She had to write it out. So she had to have that second opportunity that gave her, gave her the opportunity to put something out there in the world, knowing that we might publish it someday. I think I'm convinced she knew that. I, you know, so I was, I, I thought that too, because I'm like, well, I have a journal, nothing, and listen, I'm not a writer, but at the same time, she's writing for somebody to see this. She's writing, she's writing. It's too, it's too well, I mean, you know, cross outs, corrections, restatements, but so I wanted people to see a, a woman, you know, uncovered in her weakest moments, mm -hmm. in her best moments, but I think I also wanted to see, wanted to show what she created that we now recognize as important in almost everything we do. Public engagement, the public humanities, refusing to recognize the town-gown conflict. What does that mean? That is, you have a university that's sort of set up on the hill and people, students, professors are all one culture and everybody else is somebody else. And I, when I came to University of Kansas, that was still in existence. It probably will be for a long time. But I wanted people to see that she is the origin of so many things that we now see as commonplace, including Black studies, recognizing the value of changing a curriculum for a new century. I mean, she died in 1998, but she's saying we have a world that needs to change. I mean, this is let a new earth be born, let a new world be born. She was always in that creating the new world, wanting that new world to be born and for us to take it seriously upon ourselves to do it. So she didn't live into the 21st century. She knew she wouldn't. She knew that intuitively. But she wanted to give everything to that century so that we could follow her example and her model. 
But we didn't know what she had done. We just didn't know. There was too much that remained hidden. So I felt like I needed to let people know what you are doing now had its origins in this woman like Margaret Walker. And if she had had a chance to give us more, especially those essays and those writings. So you talk about the books that were published, the journals, but the essays where she did not mince any words, as you said. Yeah, no, the essays are It's frightening. I mean, uh, if you talk about Clarence Thomas, I mean, I don't know anybody who talked about Clarence Thomas like Margaret Walker did. My mother. <laughs> she didn't write it, but go ahead. That's yeah. right. But Walker wrote it and published it. Right, right. I know, right? Yes, yes. So she would do things that, I mean, it probably would be interesting to think about had she published some of the stuff that she wrote in her lifetime. She would have become the most famous person we don't want to know. Right. Powerful. I, I really enjoyed it. Listen, Dr. Graham, as we sort of begin to come to a close there, just a couple of things that that really stood out to me and just some, some questions uh, about sort of your work. One, there's a point in the book where either she's um, she meets Marian Anderson, and this is just a comment. I realize now that what we do during Black History Month is not enough, right? So I know about Marian Anderson and, you know, sort of she's denied and then she goes to the Lincoln Memorial and blah, blah. And it's, it's kind of fairy tale. I didn't realize what a powerful woman and presence and just sort of. So now that was one of the things that I took away from your book is I got to go and dig into Marian Anderson. I mean, you you really. Uh, brought out that this was a, um, so my wife and I are trying to figure out how we can take out a fifth mortgage to get Beyonce tickets. But it seems like Marian Anderson had that sort of presence in electricity, you know, during her time. Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would add to that, uh, this is another tidbit, is that Walker, as far as I know, was the first sponsored tour of a black writer. Now Langston Hughes did go on a tour and Mary McLeod Bethune paid for the car. And so it was sponsored, but she had an official tour sponsored by an organization and she went and agreed to do it so that she could go to HBCUs. She did the PWIs. And so Marion Anderson was one of those. And we knew about musicians and, and sopranos and operatic and people who would go on tour to sing. But Walker went on tour as a writer, an officially sponsored tour in the 40s, early 40s, in black schools, black colleges. And I hope other people hear you. Some of you must have materials and archives at your institutions with images of her visit to those schools in the early 40s. I did not find any, but I am convinced that there must be documentation of those visits because we know she took the tour. We know she was on the tour. The journal documents the train rides and the meeting, and of course, the, the 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 meeting her husband on one of those trips. So she was one of those first women, like Marin Anderson, and they knew each other, who would go on tours in black schools in the South, Fear, fearlessly, fearlessly. So here's the thing that I also got is that from the people, her contemporaries and people in her generation, people like Marian Anderson and uh, people like Gwendolyn Brooks, 
meeting or being in company with Margaret Walker was being in the company of a giant. It was not like, so while she may be the most famous person that nobody knows in her time and with her peer group, she stands, you know, stands tall. So that's one. One, I want to thank you for your writing about her travels and writing about segregation in the way you wrote it and, and talking about catching the bus and having the, the sort of, it seemed like plastic and separating black folks and white folks and just the humility, the, the humiliation of segregation. And, and, and I will tell you why is that with everything that's going on in Florida and Texas in terms of black history and and quite frankly, the 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 elimination of public schools is what I think is going on. Having um, having it documented is very important because I'm afraid that people will say it didn't happen or it wasn't that bad. I want to want to thank you for that. Brain drain, and you talked about in the book the number of professors who left and went to PWIs in that period of 69, 70, 71, earlier, what have you. So I'm not necessarily talking about physical Black community. I'm just talking about the Black community as a whole. As we're experiencing what's going on in Florida and in Texas in terms of the attack on Black culture and culture, period, right? Just learning almost in general. It seems to me that there's some voices and organization missing. How does the humanities give us a stronger voice to combat these things? Um, because, you know, we're, we're very much in a STEM heavy world. We need to STEM and you need to do this or what have you. But somehow I think that, I, I don't know, and maybe I have a romantic view of it, but it seems like there's a generation ago where we would have had better organization and voices fighting back against that. Now, that's, that's an opinion. You didn't write anything like that in the book, but I wanted to get your thoughts on it. Well, I do think that we are at a critical moment. I think two things are essential. You're right. The humanities have lost their power in terms of the intellectual significance, uh, social significance, uh, that they gave us. I mean, the humanities were part of that 60s revolution, too. I mean, there was a revolution in, revolution in higher education, and people, the new humanities, emerged alongside the civil rights movement because history mattered more than ever. The contributions of people throughout history. So we were looking at all of this in new ways. And so I think, but then the, the sciences began to overshadow, and that's where we are. I think two things, and I'm like you, uh, I can be very much the dreamer here. I think that there is a place for a resurgence of the humanities, but also I think there's a resurgence of HBCUs. And this time, rather than Black students going to PWIs as sign of transformation and change, I think more people would be going to HBCUs where education has been preserved and the fuller history of our world can be taught to all students. So I would like to be that dreamer who says, because many of our schools are, 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 are being left behind and their histories and their collections. But I would like to see that 
there's an opportunity here. And if anybody is thinking about it, funders, you know, any of you out there who recognize the value of these institutions, this is an opportunity to preserve education, preserve knowledge, to bring everybody into the same room to get that knowledge and not not kill it, not kill it. Right, right. Now, listen, I will tell you this, that um, that so my daughter is now it's completed undergrad, but sort of her peer group here in Atlanta and at her high school, you had, you know, a number of people that could have gone like literally at anywhere, Ivy League schools, what have you. Many of she chose Howard over a bunch of things and, and some of her peers did the same as well. And so I think that is happening uh, slowly. And I think there's also always an equal effort to sort of cramp that down, right? Because, you know, there's that brain drain and there's that sort of what I call ongoing resource extraction from Mm -hmm. black community, whether it's, uh, whether it's uh, cobalt in the Congo or, 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 you know, football players or whatever, it doesn't matter. Just let me get, get my hands on it. Um, what is the history of Black Writing Project? So in the spirit of Margaret Walker, I felt that when I went to a PWI, what I learned, at least one teacher's view, it was not, I'm not going to put this on the entire school, but one teacher's view that there were no Black writers before Richard Wright. I was in one of those seminar classes. Now, again, my own history in one of those very rich Southern communities where Black excellence was always on display. Black excellence was what you strive for. You saw it. James Brown, I'm from Augusta, Georgia. James Brown. My mother taught him in second grade. Oh, really? Okay. He was was already headed for fame. He didn't need any more education, according to her. But he did need it. He just didn't want it. But the, the idea that we do not have these this richness in our community, you know, the fact that we cannot do that for me is a great travesty and have it recognized, have it acknowledged and bring it to full front and center. So I really think that we have some work to do. And I thought I could do that work. You asked me this question before. I thought I could do some of that work with this book to point people in some new directions. So when I went to graduate school, having decided, okay, I'm not gonna give up on education. I'm not gonna give up on this work that I'm doing. Having had an undergraduate white professor, uh, an undergraduate white professor tell me that there was no writer before prediction right. And my mother say to me, well, you've just found your job. You have to prove that that's not the case. So basically I was doing recovery work. The history of black writing was doing recovery work. It was bringing back those lost voices, those lost writers, and creating a color. Today we call collection building. And so over 40, we're 40 years this year. So thank you for being able to say happy birthday to HBW uh, here. And we now have found over 6,000 works of fiction by black writers in and our, and our corpus will eventually become a digital corpus that people will have access to. Maybe a new era of reprinting of those books might happen because many of them, of course, are out of print. And if they were published before 1928, they are, you know, they can be reprinted because you're not violating copyright. 
Um, we are in a very rich era of cultural production in terms of black writing, but we also lost a lot. And I was trying to put what was lost together with what is ongoing. And so the history of black writing not only has the archive, but once you introduce new things into existence, what else do you have to do? You have to train people and teach them what it is that we didn't know before. So we have a huge professional development component where people are learning in the summer and thanks to NEH for supporting those summer institutes to teach and share all this new knowledge that we are finding. Yeah. Hey, listen, all the best with that because I think it's really important. And to go back to my passion for music, I, I try to tell people that it is super weird that in the United States, and I'm not saying that this is a bad thing, that you could go to every major city, Cleveland, uh, Philadelphia, Boston, Chicago, Los Angeles, and you will find a symphony orchestra dedicated to the mu music of Mozart, Beethoven, Bach, or whatever. Yes. People who never, who've never been to the United States, who've never, who in some cases would not even ha have had a way to understand America as we know it now, and as it relates to the music of Duke Ellington and Miles Davis and Thelonious Monk, you really have. Went Marcellus's Lincoln Center in New York, and you have San Francisco jazz, and and there's an outfit in Chicago, the Chicago Jazz Orchestra. Most of those are fledgling, like except for Wynn's Lincoln Center. And I think, and where I'm going with this is that Black culture is is really American culture, and it's what's not only it's made the country, and it's made us as a people. And we have to understand that it if we don't present it in the way and in the manner and with the curation and with the uh, dignity that it is and that it's institutionalized, that we are we are missing out big time. So thank you for the work that you're doing. And I'd like to see that parallel happen in, in music. One more question before we get to our wrap-up questions. The plagiarism, accusations, trials, awards, and what have you of Alex Haley pulling from the African, Zakolander's after the African and Margaret Walker's Jubilee. We know that Colander received an out of um, an admission and sort of settlement, you know, out of court amongst the people in the literary world, scholars, uh, literary scholars is Jubilee and Margaret Walker is our due recognition for having plagiarized that work. Well, it was proven that he did after he after he died. And what I respect so much is that Walker refused to gloat. She refused to say, I told you so. I mean, this was the spiritual market, market Walker that we knew was deep, deeply um, ingrained in her, that spirituality. I am not going to speak ill of the dead. Yeah. She won in the end. She won. She was humiliated, but she won at the end. And so the evidence is there that he had a team of people writing and they were pulling from everywhere. And so he may not have known it, but he was responsible for it. And that's just fact. Now, she got all kinds of, like I said, I mean, I don't think, frankly, if you want my view, she didn't fully recover from that. Her husband died shortly after that case became public. That may have sped up his death. but. I don't think she ever bounced back from that because it was as if we had to blame somebody. We blamed her. 
because she had destroyed one of our heroes. And Alex Haley was one of our heroes. Yeah, and especially at that time in so many in reading your book, and I urge everyone to get The House Where My Soul Lives, The Life of Margaret Walker by Mary Emma Graham. It's a, it's a great book. And, and, you know, build your reading muscle, get through it. You got it. You could do it. But in reading that, I understood how for American culture, and it's always double when you're talking about Black folks, how enslaved we are to celebrity culture. So with Alex Haley being a celebrity and sort of the roots being, you know, okay, so now, you know, it's on Jet Magazine or what have you, that we're missing that, hey, there's some not just make there's not little infractions here. There's major integrity issues going on. And then also, I will tell you when I write an essay, a, a three paragraphs or a paragraph, and I write it and it's important to me, and somebody doesn't read it properly or misunderstands it or what have you, I I take it personally. So I can't imagine taking my great grandmother's story. And knowing what it meant to her to be a writer, sort of that eight years old, I want to be a writer and then becoming that and then having, you know, your work not respected and and taken away from you that way. But we don't want to miss in that moment, you know, a terrible moment, moment for her life was that she explained why it was that he had the support that he did. She explained it in those political terms as any Marxist would, because he had become a commodity. Yep. Too many people would lose. And of course, they found evidence, people who had been paid off not to say anything. So yeah. that's what I'm saying. She was clearly a winner in that situation. But the world, as we know it, had to see her as the cause of his undoing. She was she was a failure because she dared to challenge. But there was a political analysis there that surfaced that was classic Margaret Walker. Mm-hmm. And that was the reason I gave it the attention it did, because I could have just not included it because once she never spoke out, she didn't give up. She gave one interview. She refused to uh, you know, talk about I've been vindicated, blah, 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 blah. She didn't do any of that. Mm-hmm. But she gave a political analysis that I think is is one that that we should learn a lot from. Yeah, now we should. Um so uh, thank you for that. And also thank you in, in the afterward of your book of calling out the Jackson State shooting in 1970 as state violence. We're getting ready to do two episodes on that, one with a professor who's written sort of a, uh, a third-person view, and then uh, from someone who's a student there, Vernon Steve Weekly, um, will be the guest. And so that's really important. I'm glad you said that. Um, so as we wrap up, and thank you again for your time, and everybody go and get the book. We encourage everyone to support independent booksellers, Black booksellers book even better. Trust trust me, my family has Amazon covered. There are probably boxes of Amazon stuff here with all kinds of, they, they'll be okay with if you get this book from someplace else. Dr. Graham, what does it mean to live well? It's a very good question. I think to have most of your days filled with some joy. Mm-hmm. Amen. To find joy in small things, not always the big explosive things, but to have most of your days where you can say, this was joyful today. 
Amen. 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 Uh, and we always close out with with music. Sort of, um, how long did it take you to write this book first? Before oh, good question. It took me 20 years. Woo! 20 now, years. That, was, that was active writing. There was conception before that time, some interviews done, but the actual writing off and on for 20 years. Wow. Okay. A, lo- a lot of life passed through those those years, as you can imagine. It, 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 it shows and it was well worth it. Um, so, yes, I, 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 20 years is, is, is a lot, but it, it makes perfect sense for anybody. When you get the book, you will you will know what I'm talking about. OK, so for you, Dr. Graham. What's what is the joy of music sound like? Give me either three or four songs, artists. Uh, what 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 is the joy of music sound like to you? I think there is for me. It's a combination of a kind of gospel song mm-hmm. or jazz. Of course, I grew up on rhythm and blues. Yeah, and oh, for me. Yeah. And when I went to Mississippi, it was BB King's music that just gave me. Because it was the sound of the music and the sound of his voice. Yeah, he had yeah. a particular sound that he could he could enunciate and use in his throat that I had never heard before. Mm-hmm. So my all time favorite, you know, was BB King. My mother loved classical music and she loved the Negro spirituals. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And so I have to give credit to her for making me aware of the histories in those songs. So I go to any, anytime I go to a concert, gospel is important. I enjoy it. But if I've got a a good Negro spiritual concert, I'm good. I'm good to go. Well, you know, having said that, uh, have you experienced the Spelman Glee Club? Yes, I have. The Morehouse Glee Club, the Spelman. Yeah. Yes. I'm from Georgia. Absolutely. You're from Georgia. Yeah, that's right. So, so there you go. Duh. Man, listen. If, so if you want to, to hear something, you know, uplifting and, you know, coming from a place of those young women, listen, they, they can deep and, and I don't know the name of the, the director of the, of the Glee Club, but boy, they, they have something special there. So. Well, I will have to give some shout out to Augusta, Georgia, because they would come and sing in Tabernacle Baptist Church in Augusta, Georgia uh, every year. And so I grew up on that Morehouse Glee Club tradition. Awesome. 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 Well, listen, all the best uh, with this book, The House Where My Soul Lives, The Life of Margaret Walker. All the best to you with the book and with the History of Black Writing Project uh, to everyone else. And we thank you for joining us with the Parlay in All Blue. Thank you so much, Mark. Bye-bye. The Parlay in All Blue is produced by Raina Booth Podcast Productions. Music is provided by DJ Marky G. You can support us at buymeacoffee.com backslash Parlay in All Blue. Remember to like the show leave a review, and share it. It helps to keep our work going and helps others to find us. If you have questions, comments, or show ideas, please email us at mark at the parlayandallblue.com. Finally, remember to follow us on social media. And thanks, be well, and we out.